Okay, we're finishing up contemplation of the mind directly. And I just want to know if there are any loose ends, any questions before we move to contemplation 13 on impermanence? Recall we left off with the the 12th, which had to do with liberating the mind. I'm breathing in and liberating my mind. I'm breathing out and liberating my mind. The yogi practices like this. If I refresh your refresh your your mind. Oh. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to go into it in a huge amount of detail. Actually, what I'd rather hear is those who are here, if you've uh, anything you want to talk about regarding that. Okay, I'll say a few things in more or less review. Maybe it's a little bit more clear. In this contemplation, you work with the breath, so you're with the in-breath and the out-breath, and that can be wherever you're comfortable with it, wherever you want to be with it, really. For many, you might be right at the nose, the nose tip. And what does it mean, liberating the mind? Uh, the essence of this one has to do with the beginnings of getting to understand attachment and letting go. And so, while you're breathing in and breathing out, anytime any, you see any clinging or grasping, then you can put this contemplation into play. Now, let me uh, suggest the, the, the thrust that really will help you do this letting go. And so, remember, this is not any kind of final liberation. It's just a momentary liberation. Although, these momentary liberations lead to deeper liberations and you know when does a deep liberation happen it happens in a moment um, I would say an important aspect for all of us with this contemplation is first of all to get to know what clinging and attachment is that is what the penalty is if any for grasping holding clinging I mean maybe it's a good thing to do don't believe all this stuff that Buddha said or any of the teachers say and so step number one is, can be, while you're breathing in and breathing out, anytime there's any kind of holding in the mind. Remember, attachment is, is basically the mind. It has to do with the, it's not, the image is a physical one of grasping. But it's really, uh, I mean, if I'm holding on to this, this doesn't mean attachment in that sense. But let's say if uh, this uh, striker for the bell, if I'm holding on to it, the attachment is in the mind. However, Let's say if I use it and I strike the bell and then I'm, you see me holding it for the rest of the class and then the class ends and I go upstairs and I take a bath with it and I go to sleep with it. The next morning I eat breakfast with it and wherever you see me in Harvard Square, I have this in my hand. It might be reasonable to assume that I have a bit of an attachment to this striker because it's mainly you use it to hit the bell and then you put it down. Well, it's somewhat, so the problem is in the mind. We would just know that from something unusual. So one way to uh, work with this contemplation 
would be any time there's an attachment, any time you feel any grasping or clinging in the mind. It can be very, very slight. It doesn't have to be anything heavy. It's just a, a stuck quality. Uh, the mind is abiding somewhere. It's, it's, it just wants to sit down. You know, it just wants to stop here. And, you know, this is, anytime you see that, uh, one good way to ease into this contemplation is to, is to pay attention while you're breathing in and breathing out and see if maybe it's fine to do that. Now what you may see, which many people have seen, it's probably in the millions by now, it's been done for thousands of years, is that when the mind tends to grasp onto anything, to hold on to it, uh, that there is a penalty, that there's a feeling of tightness or obvious suffering that comes up. Or is something not so much fun to hold on to something. But see if that's so. In other words, get to know attachment. So we don't have to be in a hurry to let go, because the kind of letting go that is possible when we don't fully understand attachment is not much. Because remember, it's not forcing things. It's not uh, some kind of a false kind of thing. It's, a, it's the, the most uh, effective letting go comes out of understanding of attachment. And as you'll see, we're going to be doing, you know, the next contemplation is, is going to enter into the deepest way to, to look at attachment. So that if you begin to see attachment, and time and time again you see the cost of it, the mind begins, just as if you uh, stick your hand in the fire. That one, you, we usually don't need too many, we learn that one pretty quickly. Maybe some people have to do it a few times. Most of us get it. You know, you do this, your hand burns. So you see there's a penalty for doing that. The penalty is in nature. Or is it's, this, you know, it's all lawful, the universe is lawful. And what's being suggested is that the law, one law is attachment leads to suffering. See if it's so, so that any time you feel yourself clinging and grasping to begin with, take a look at it and just see what that's about. Get, become much more familiar with attachment so that the letting go can come out of understanding and has the power of understanding. Rather than just doing it like obeying orders. Well, you're supposed to let go because attachment's no good. Everyone says that, and so I'm just going to do it. I wouldn't have much faith in that kind of letting go because uh, it doesn't have the power of personal, first-hand understanding. Okay, so one side is seeing the cost of attachment. The other side is seeing what happens when you don't cling, when you don't grasp. See if that's an improvement. See how it is to live when you can let go. See if there's a sense of relief or release. Let's say if there's an attachment and then the attachment ends. Or if you remember in the exercise, so, so this kind of seeing both sides of it can be a very powerful way for the mind to re-educate itself. First it sees the cost of clinging and grasping and getting caught, and then it sees how beneficial it is to not do that. So between those two, it begins to re-educate itself. It just as if you were to put your hand in the, fl in the flame and see, oh, that hurts. And then, oh, I see, when I don't, that feels all right. Well, you know, I, you put one hand in the flame and say, oh, and the other one you don't. Say, oh, this one doesn't hurt. Now, that one seems silly because it's so obvious, but a lot of the suffering that is going on is the same principle. It's just incredibly more subtle. It's much more subtle. 
and it's not necessarily always right in that moment. Uh, sometimes what happens is it's in a subsequent moment. Okay. Uh, so that could be a beginnings of this contemplation, but then eventually uh, one way, and it can be a lot of fun. A few people, one person had such a good time with this this last week that he called me up, you know, to say, uh, you know, just any thought, that just any time you felt, feel the mind is stuck anywhere or grasping anywhere, you just very gently lift it off. You, know, just, you, know, you can just come back to the breath, like a needle from a phonograph. And sometimes you don't even have to really do that, a lot of, like with thoughts. Again, if there's some degree of calm and steadiness in the mind, just aiming your attention at the process of thought, and the thoughts just, you, they hardly see the light of day. You know, they just, they start going, you, the thought doesn't finish what it's trying to say, and it's not that you're clubbing it or anything, it's just that it just gets burned up by awareness. But so anytime, in that one you're breathing in, you're breathing out, and anytime you see a quality of stuck, the, the mind is stuck anywhere, you see that, and just, if you can, just release yourself from it. You can just come back to the breath, or switch to something else. And we, we talked a little bit about that last week. Look, I'm still holding on to the striker. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, it does, is, are there any comments or questions, either about this or anything that's come up last week, before, during this past week, before we move into the 13th, which is a very, very important one. Of course, they all are, but 13 is really, it's distinctive. Anything having to do with bringing the breath into daily life? Okay. Thirteenth reads, I'm breathing in and constantly contemplating the impermanent nature of all dhammas. Dhammas can be read as phenomena, both physical and mental. I'm breathing out and constantly contemplating the impermanent nature of all dhammas. The yogi practices like this. Okay, this is a big one. This is the gateway to wisdom. We're now moving into pure vipassana practice. Up until now, we've either been with one or another forms of tranquility meditation, or a mixture of where we've been calming the mind, and, and of course, we've learned some things in the process. It's not that, what, that impermanence is so new. It's not totally new. It's not a totally new idea. Even if you've just never heard of Buddhism or the Buddhist teaching and just started at the beginning of this, how can you not see that things are impermanent? You can't help it but see that things keep changing. No matter which contemplation we were doing, incidentally, or sometimes it would just break in on you, uh, you would get a glimpse of the fact that things are impermanent. You'd learn about that one. Or you get a flash, you, just, you really see it for a moment, and then it's gone. So this is not new in that sense. But what's distinctive about the 13th um, 
is that now, rather than, first of all, just uh, in a kind of uh, accidental way or casual way, uh, seeing that various aspects or various things or various things that we're observing uh, seem to change, where now the object is change itself. So that before we were seeing, let's say, long breaths and short breaths, and we, we saw uh, joy, uh, we saw, the, let's say, the body calm down as the breath became more calm, and perhaps the body not calm down or become more tense as the breath became more tense, and we saw some joy or PT, and we saw some tranquility and so forth. Just if you can think back, all of those contemplations, we've been seeing a lot of different things, aspects of life, you know, long breath, short breath, these, it's all very mundane. It's all very, here mundane is not a derogatory term. We're watching breath, we're watching some happiness in the mind, we're seeing the body calm down, we're seeing the body get agitated, we're seeing, hearing the mind think, we're hearing the mind not think. And in the process, some wisdom uh, breaks through and we catch a glimpse of it. But now, it's not that uh, we're studying these different objects and from time to time uh, we catch a glimpse of something, we, we develop some wisdom, but rather now the impermanence itself is what we're looking at. One, you could look at it, it's a switch from content to process. That is, before we were looking at particular things, long breaths and short breaths and so forth. There are many different ways to come at the breath. Uh, we've had 12 different ways so far. Okay. But now, what we're looking at is something that cuts through any content. We're looking at impermanence itself, anicca. We're looking at the fact that everything is constantly in flux, a kind of passingness that characterizes reality. Uh, and it's so powerful that it's referred to as a, uh, a universal characteristic. I mean, this is not... When you look at certain things, there are a lot of individual differences. This one... Everyone has this one going on all the time, any place, anywhere, to anyone, at any time, any, any, no matter what you want, however you want to qualify it, this law of impermanence is going on. So it's, it's like it's, it runs through the content that makes up our life. Our life is made up, it's got color. Our life is colorful. It has themes and we have our story and they're recognizable phenomenon. You know, there, there's a world out there that has, there are cars and clouds and all kinds of things that make our world interesting for us. And impermanence is, is there all the time. The only difference now is we're beginning to plunge into this, it's a kind of ocean. It's like diving into an ocean of impermanence. Because now there's nothing outside of impermanence. It's not like there's some stable point that's watching the impermanence, because that, too, is part of it. Okay, so you, can you see the shift? Now, why is this one so important? Number 13. Without 13, uh, the practice doesn't really come to yield much fruit. Without, without the big understanding impermanence, the whole, this whole thing we've been doing, whatever your practice is, doesn't really amount to that much. I don't mean to trivialize what you've been doing, but unless there's an increasingly deep seeing of impermanence, 
you may calm down a bit, and there are all kinds of ways in which the quality of your life will improve. But in terms of what this practice is designed to do, what the teachings of the Buddha uh, are about, uh, it won't amount to anything. I mean, it's just simple. It's really, I don't know how to, I can't sugarcoat it or soften it. Now, it isn't even really just seeing impermanence. Uh, in this uh, contemplation, the Buddha talks about impermanence. But throughout the teachings of the Buddha, uh, the, the deep meaning of vipassana is mentioned all the time, insight. And insight is insight into the, the three characteristics. Impermanence, or you could say inconstancy. Things are just not constant. Dukkha, suffering, or is there's an unsatisfactory aspect to life. I'm not saying that's all there is, but there's clearly some unsatisfactoriness in life. And that directly has to do with impermanence. It's not like it's off somewhere else having nothing to do with impermanence. If you start watching change, it's going to lead you directly to see suffering. Now, some suffering is just obvious. You're in pain. But there are more subtle kinds of suffering that come out of a deeper and deeper understanding of impermanence. You, can, you begin to see that everything is uncertain, that you can't really depend on anything. Now, again, I'm not using this in, uh, in, in some kind of moralistic way. It's just purely descriptive. Because everything is changing, and we're, like we're talking everything, as, we, as you begin to see that, there is, uh, you begin to see that all the conditions that make up our life are interrelated, and there are causes and effects which not only depend on each other, but there's nothing, there's nothing stable in the midst of it. Okay, so what you see is things are coming and going, and the clearer you see that, the clearer you can see that, uh, that there's a, we're, we're liable to suffer, we're prone to suffer, because uh, things that we think we've established keep disintegrating, they keep falling away. Whatever you want to talk about, whole civilizations, or some neat little routine you've set up for your life, or the condition of your body, or relationships, you tell me. And so at a certain point, there's a more sensitive or more delicate or more subtle understanding of why impermanence uh, it makes life difficult. There's a, there's a kind of insecurity running through life because of this uh, uncertainty. We never know what's next. There's a lot of surprises in life, right? I mean, it's not just my life. And once you get quiet and you start seeing the arising and passing away of absolutely everything, especially you go deeper and you see it in more subtle forms, uh, you inevitably you not only go through an understanding of how we're liable to suffer because of the, the absence of any firm ground, but also you begin to see that there's no self. There's no... because uh, that's really another way... Of, they're all different ways of saying the same thing. Here you begin to see that there isn't anything, if everything is changing, then where is there a self? And you find that there isn't any kind of stable anything that can control the suffering. There's no solid self that can put an end to it. 
And so what you begin to see is a process of mental and physical elements constantly interacting with each other, and obviously with the whole universe. And you, you see that there, uh, there's this incredible process. There's seeing into the process. And so you have, those are the three uh, essential meanings of vipassana, seeing into the fact that everything changes and there's a certain unsatisfactoriness or stress. If you want to use the present language, that captures some of it. It can be obvious stress. It can be extraordinarily subtle. It's stressful to be alive. And when you get really quiet, you'll see that even happiness becomes stressful because it doesn't last. Again, this is not to be pessimistic. Be happy when you're happy. But you'll see, we've all seen it many, many times. It lasts for a certain period of time, and then it becomes something else. Everything is constantly becoming something else. And there is no fixed entity, no enduring, unchanging entity that can stand up to that, that's able to change it, that, you know, that, for example, can tell the breath to, I don't ever want to... have an unpleasant breath. I, you know, maybe you're having beautiful free breathing, very deep and subtle. Okay, I, I want it to be this way all the time. We can influence things, but we don't, there's, there's no, nothing solid that controls them. And what we are doing, our practice is, starting to issue influences that have a very positive effect. But, there, but we don't, there's nothing that can control the process. There's no, that's another meaning of self. There's nothing that owns it. When we go past 13, what we'll be getting, what we'll be seeing, if we see it, is how everything belongs to nature. And that freedom is giving it all back to nature, joyfully, not claiming anything as if it's me or mine. Okay, so now, if you, even if you only see impermanence, that's not enough. Not in the sense of the Buddhist teaching. It will lack a certain profundity. That is, if you get a kind of more than average understanding of impermanence, that will be helpful because your life will go more smoothly. Because if things truly are changing all the time and you're more attuned to that, then obviously it's a smoother ride. But if you don't, see the other, they're all, any one of them, if you go deeply into any one of them, you'll see the other two. So that when the Buddha in the 13th talks about impermanence, he's talking about the other two. He's talking about all three are really different facets of the same phenomena. Things that arise and pass away constantly don't have any final ability to satisfy us. There's no final fulfillment in them. They can't be, because they keep changing. And there's no firm self that's in the midst of all this. And so, as you, if, if you go very deeply into impermanence, you do see the others. They just go right out of it. You begin to see all of these very, very clearly. Now, it's not an exercise in morbidity, it's an exercise in liberation. But at first, the medicine can be rather bitter, but often, you know, sometimes at least bitter medicines can heal. Okay, so now, if you just improve your ability to see impermanence, which can be done, but you don't go very deeply into the, into the remaining, especially you don't see the absence of self, that there is nothing that can be claimed as I or mine, then the full fruit of the practice is not possible. It's not really the Buddhist teaching. Because impermanence is not so unusual. Everyone's known that. And people have been talking about it. The ancients were talked about it a lot. But what 
there's a kind of a, another flourish added on to it, this notion of self, to see that even the self, what we think of as self, is, is, uh, has the same lawfulness to it. That it exists relatively. You know, I, I'm not saying that there's nothing there, but there's no self in the sense in which we impute one to be there. We live as if there is just the opposite of what I've been saying. First of all, that lots of things are impermanent, mainly us, that we'll be present at our own funeral, you know, just really happy and together and no problem, and just, oh, there I go dying, no problem, let's go to the movies. But it doesn't work that way. And also that, uh, so we're having a good time, that just life on the planet is just a ball. Now, some of it is, there is a good time to be had. It's both, as I understand it, human life is awful and it's marvelous. Both are interrelated. It's harder for us to see the awful part. We've been brought up to really allow a certain amount in. And now again, you don't have to agree with this, but from this point of view, um, the resistance to fully seeing dukkha, to fully seeing the depth of it, is strongly related to, to maturity in the Dharma. That is, as you mature on the path, you're more able to see this truth. Before that, there's tremendous emotional resistance to it. I mean, we all know there's, a, there's enough, there's plenty of suffering, but it really is, it's not just these obvious forms of, you know, when we have a toothache or when someone's cruel to us. There's a much more subtle existential one that's with us all the time. Okay, now, um, the 13th, therefore, is really the heart of the whole teaching. Because as the, as the penetration into impermanence deepens, we begin to see all the rest. Particularly, we really will see, not as a theory or as speculation, we'll begin to see the arising and passing away of everything so that there isn't anything outside that process. And learning to surrender to that, to really feel the liberation of that, is putting the burden of attempting to maintain the notion that there is something. It's not that we we know we're doing it right now. It's a, such a deep conditioning that we're doing it without even knowing we're doing it. And that's why we need to be teaching that pours in on us from outside so much, because on our own we probably would not see this. Otherwise, the power of the ego is so powerful, the conditioning is so strong, that there will always be that island of where we exempt ourselves. That island gets exempt from scrutiny. And so we can see impermanence all over, but we can't see there's that one step that's remaining. Um, there's a short method. Did I mention this last week? The short method? Tuanapanasati. Yeah. Uh, in other words, this is probably, I think, uh, the Americans must have been in my when this was devised. Uh, it's neither, you don't see it in the Buddhist teaching, although you can uh, legitimately infer it because essentially what the Buddha is saying is get concentrated. For example, the level of penetration to the impermanence that I'm talking now, it can't be done unless there's strong samadhi. Really, in other words, we're going to get our, our, what is it, feet wet or something wet, and we'll get some experience with it, but and I feel fine about uh, moving us into that. And tonight we'll, we'll calm down a bit. We'll do some walking and some sitting, and then we'll begin a preliminary entree into that. But 
truly the levels of understanding that I'm talking about have to do with reasonably strong samadhi, at which point it's possible to penetrate more and more deeply and to see what, see what I'm talking about. And it's that which liberates you. So the short way is just to get strong samadhi however you do it. However you get strong samadhi, good. And then just uh, examine impermanence, just examine arising and passing away. Uh, I'm going to say a few more words because I'd rather be done with some of the talking so then we could then practice uh, silently and even if we just get a little bit of a glimpse of it, or if not tonight, maybe uh, as part of your practice during the week. If you, if you get quiet during one sitting or another, you might be able to, to do some of this. Um, okay, we've already been through a lot. If you've been doing all the contemplations and the different uh, modes to help us do it and variations, there's been a fair amount of variety up until now in 12. Now, how would you do 13? How would you study impermanence? Uh, one of the best ways, again, everything I've been saying has been, under, uh, has been put in ideal terms. The ideal would be you have a long retreat, and it's uninterrupted, and so you build samadhi up from day to day. And it's not that you go out to work, or you go to school, or you go to your family, and to some degree you lose it, whatever you've, let's say, developed it. Uh, so that would make the continuity of everything we've been done more obvious when you're doing it on a, a let's say, a reasonably long retreat. You can get a lot of this done on a 10-day retreat. I've done it. But it's like, you, know, you have to really apply yourself. Um, when you get to 12, one very beautiful way to do it, now I'm giving the long way, because this is meant as a very thorough training, and for some people this is a lifetime's work. Their whole practice for 40, Buddha Das has been practicing Anapanasati in the forest at Swanmok Monastery for over 50 years. He's been in that same bloody forest. He's come out from time to time, give a little talk here. In the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, he doesn't even come out anymore. Okay, and a lot of what he's been doing, his main practice has been Anapanasati. So it's easily a lifetime's work. If you want it to be, it's a complete practice. It leads to the seven factors of enlightenment and liberation. You don't need anything else. Okay. When you come to 12, and now what we're talking about is every time you breathe in and you breathe out, you contemplate impermanence. One good way is you, you start right from the beginning. You go all the way back to square one. And what, what did we do, if you remember, square one? was We got to know the long breath and the short breath and I'll refresh all of our memories. First it was that, breathing in a long breath, breathing in a short breath. Do you remember when we did some of that? And then we got into being aware of the whole body, seeing how the breath conditions the body, uh, the different ways and exercises that we did, tracking, following the breath this way, or other ways, just following it out and in, just feeling it wherever you feel it. And we saw the body, by the fourth, we saw the body calming down as the breath became more calm. We could see the body becoming more calm if you saw that. And we moved into joy, seeing joy arise and, and seeing peace arise and uh, seeing how the mind was affected by feelings, by either uh, having um, uh, piti or sukha, how they affected even the kinds of thoughts that you would have, and how the mind could calm down 
when it became more concentrated, and we, we went into the mind itself, becoming aware of, of the content of the mind, seeing thoughts arise, seeing the kalesas. We gladdened the mind. We just mentioned a few ways to just help the mind get happy and then contemplate that happiness. We concentrated the mind and then came to know what a concentrated mind is like, what a distracted mind is like, really getting to know that. And then we practice liberating the mind, which is what I just said tonight. Okay, now, so one way to work classically is you, now you begin. You've done all this kind of training, assuming you've done that. You now start all over, and you begin to see that it's all impermanent, everything that you've observed. I'll just break in on a few of these. Let's say uh, long breath and short breath. Just extract that one, just that first lesson, first two lessons, long and short. Supposing you now look at it, but now we're practicing vipassana. Before, it was sort of a preliminary way of familiarizing ourselves with breathing and seeing that one uh, very substantial characteristic of breath is that it can either be deep or shallow. And we saw that it had implications. Deep breath had implications for well-being of the body, and later on, of course, we see for the mind, too. Only now, we're coming back to the very same contemplation. Just simply longer, is the breath longer short? You can find that out at the nostrils, or you can just be with the whole breath. Does it go deeply into the abdomen or beyond, or do you feel it only at the chest? Or if you're just following the breath, just sitting, you can feel a kind of a pressure outwards in the abdomen if it's a deep breath, or not very much if it's shallow, and you feel it only at the chest if it's very, very shallow. However you determine long or short, there's different ways to do it. You can be aware of the whole body and feel the breath is long or short. Now, we focus in on long and short, but we're mainly interested in impermanence. And so we see the breath is rather shallow. And then as we watch it, it starts to gradually get longer and longer or deeper and deeper. And so we see change. We're seeing but now what we're interested in is not the long and the short, we're interested in change. In fact, in all of these contemplations now, now the content is not as interesting as the process of change. And so the content is just a medium from which to extract this lawfulness that is everywhere. And so we use the long and short breath to see that long becomes short and then short becomes long. And if you watch the breath long enough, you, you know, it keeps changing that way. Now it's long, now it's short, now it's in between. So that's why you can go all the way on just that one. You can develop samadhi and also liberating insight on just long and short. If you really get to know, if you're drawn to that, you can, do a, you can really use that and just thoroughly study that. But only now you're studying it from the point of view of wisdom. And you're seeing that there's nothing to be counted on. That long doesn't stay long forever. Short doesn't stay long forever. That sometimes it, you start to see that the fact that you can't count on, let's say the breath becomes very deep, and there's happiness, as some of you experience, when the breath becomes deeper, and then you lose it. You, you just have, now the reason might be you have one negative thought, that rotten so-and-so, and all of a sudden the breath shrinks. You know, it's no longer deep and full, and now it's pinched off and agitated. That's the cause, but what you can see is, you are just so happy having a nice, full, free breath that flowed so nicely. Suddenly there you are gasping again, and the breath is, and there's suffering. 
the gasping is suffering, the disappointment in that it doesn't remain so beautiful and free and fine and pleasant forever. It doesn't. It's not forever. So you can just learn an awful lot. You can use the length of the breath to promote the development of wisdom. And similarly, you can just move through, if you have the time, which I know, you know we don't have, you can move through each and every one of them. You, let's say you get very concentrated by being at the nose, the nose tip, and you come into, into uh, PT. You know, there's great joy in the mind. Then switch, watch the joy, but only now we're not contemplating the joy to get to know joy as joy, as we did earlier. Now we're studying PT again. It's, an, it's a medium through which we see that it doesn't last. PT is great, and maybe it gets deeper, and the whole body is suffused with a certain kind of rapture, what is called rapture. And then it, it, it doesn't last. You can't hold on, and there's nothing that you can call upon. There's no self that can say, this is my rapture, and this self is so solid that it intervenes and says, I want it to, I'm always going to be rapturous now. Finally, I've discovered it. Now I know what the practice was always about. I'm, now, delusion does allow us to conclude that, and there are people walking around who think they're enlightened. It usually doesn't last that long. Some can stay at it for even years. Just because there's some of that uh, experience of piti, it can be so remarkable. But now we're contemplating it, and now we put, we're looking at it through the lens of vipassana, and we see that piti, at a certain point, the conditions change, and they don't support it, and it falls away. Or it becomes happiness, it becomes more subtle. Oh, great, no more piti. Well, but you see it's impermanent. Oh, this is even better. Now it's just so soothing and so sweet. I'd, I'd much rather even be here than in piti. And then that falls away and changes. Now, this is interesting. It's not that you might say, well, why do we bother in the first place? You know, here we are developing strong samadhi, and the samadhi led to stillness, and the stillness led to certain happiness and contentment. And what do we find out? It doesn't last. Why bother? Let's just give up meditation. Roll up our mat. Chuck it all. No. We had to get to a certain level of calm, steadiness, happiness, all of these qualities, so that the mind could be strong enough, so it could be uh, free from distraction enough, so that it could see through to the inherent nature of these phenomena. Unless the samadhi is developed and we develop them on these things, it isn't strong enough to really see with any profundity the depth of impermanence so that that lesson can be absorbed and free us. Can you follow? It's like you have to get happy enough to find out about how, how uh, you know, what it really is. If you don't, and that happiness is happiness. We're talking about uncommon happiness. It's not just someone gives you a million dollars and you're just ecstatic. You know, that fades away. I don't know, but it probably does. But what we're talking now are very high levels of concentration, and there's great happiness that comes along with that. And it's necessary. It's, it's not worthless just because it's impermanent. I mean, it would be like saying a meal is worthless just because it doesn't last forever. Or making love is impermanent just because you can't go on forever. It's not saying that. It's just saying it doesn't have any kind of ultimate fulfillment. It can't possibly, because it has the nature to arise and pass away. It doesn't mean it's worthless, but it gives you a sense of it qualifies it as to what it is. Now, we often pin our hopes on certain things in life, particularly in relationship. If I could, maybe this will perk everyone up. 
in my own case, if I've learned anything from impermanence and relationship, I've learned the enormous help that whatever level of impermanence you can get, whatever level of wisdom you can muster up about impermanence, uh, it helps you see that, first of all, you as a person are constantly changing. You know, your moods, your values, everything you say, you know, there's a lot of change. Uh, we're liable to, of course, age, get sick, and eventually die. But in addition to that, there's a lot of change. Your partner is also not exempt from this law. And yet, we lay on top of the other person a wish for some incredible, as if it's a permanent happiness. That is, this person, if only I get their love, if they give me their love, if we can, you know, the romantic myth, then, I, then everything will be fine. If we can only be together forever, then everything will be fine. Now, I'm not saying that there, are, there is not happiness in relationship. There can be quite wonderful relationships and beautiful marriages and so forth. But if you load that relationship up with uh, an expectation that it's going to be absolutely fulfilling, you're in for a big disappointment. And so you've loaded that on to your partner, and you're going to be disappointed, and they do that to you. So it's two people, both of whom subject to impermanence and change, down deep wanting something permanent from the other. And you can't get it. Now, if you, through wisdom, see that, that, that it's not in the nature of things for anyone to be able to give you that, in addition to redirecting your energies a bit more to inside, you're looking for perfection in the wrong place if you're looking for it in a relationship or in another person which is not saying don't have a relationship or you can't have a good relationship. So I'm not saying that. The odd thing is, it's not so odd really, but if you can drop that burden, in other words, uh, it's sort of a compassionate act when you realize this poor other person, they're just like me. They say things and they don't stick to it and they change and their moods change and sometimes they're happy and sometimes they're depressed and their health goes up and down and their feelings for me go up and down. And you, know, you realize they're just you. So then if both people realize that, you know, you don't give each other such a hard time. We're these poor creatures subject to the law of impermanence. Let's, uh, let's take that into account, and it, it can become easier. Okay, so that I don't want to go through all of them. Uh, so one way to practice would be to take up the 13th contemplation by going back and starting all over and just working your way through all of these things. You don't have to do that, obviously. You can just pick out anyone that you liked. If there's any one of these lessons that you were drawn to, maybe it was long or short. And I think I'll suggest that for the week. It's something we can all agree on. Then study that and see if you can see. But now the emphasis is on the impermanence. You still have to be concentrated enough to discern long and short. But now what you've got to see are these subtle gradations about how long suddenly starts becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. And then it becomes longer and longer and longer and shorter and shorter and shorter. And it's that that we're contemplating. We're contemplating this, this flux, this change. And the long and short is just an excuse to learn it. Or if you feel peace or joy or happiness or anger or pain in the body, it really doesn't matter. You contemplate it, but now what you're looking for is movement. You see how it's endlessly becoming something else. So one way to practice, this, another way, since probably we won't go through all of it, is to just pick one that you like. Still another way to practice, this is the way I, I practice a lot, and it's quite beautiful. If you find your mind is really in a sitting, it's pretty calm and stable, you don't need any agenda. You just sit. And while breathing in and breathing out, just whatever 
is prominent. Just see how it's impermanent. And one moment it's a thought, and then it's pain in the body, and then it's a bird chirping, and, you know, it's all the same. If you focus in on the content, it's all different. In other words, if there's an attachment to content, to form, then you don't catch this. And that's part of why we need strong samadhi is our natural bent is to be attached to content. So we're not going to be able to really see the impermanence because we keep getting hooked in on the content. We're so interested in it. What is this about? What's happening? This story, that story. It's only natural. Our minds are like that. When the samadhi gets stronger and with some encouragement, it's able to, to be unwavering enough to stick to the content, not be distracted by anything, and to notice that whatever that content is, it goes through changes. So one way is to just be with the in-breath and the out-breath, and even see that, you know, see the, the breath is changing, and anything else that arises while you're contemplating breathing in and breathing out, it doesn't matter. You're just choiceless. It could be pain in the knee. You're with the pain in the knee while breathing in and out, seeing how that pain is changing. It could be a mood. There's a sadness uh, filling up the mind while breathing in and breathing out. You see the sadness start to get more and more sad, then it starts to decompose and fall away, and there's a lightness, and suddenly you feel a relief. Oh, I'm not sad anymore. And then you can contemplate that. All done while breathing in and breathing out. You can look at the breath itself and just see that each in-breath begins and ends, each out-breath begins and ends, wherever you look at it. You can contemplate in and out breaths, you know, the breath comes in and then it goes out. So that anything, it fills up and then it empties. It fills up and then it empties. It's what's happening all day long. Things are sort of, they're getting born and then they die. They're getting born and then they die. We take in prana or air or oxygen or breath and then we empty it. We take it in and then we empty it. And it's endless. We eat and then we empty from the food. We drink and then we urinate. Everything is coming and going, arising and passing away. This one um, has to be learned with real depth. Then it becomes really a wisdom practice. And so much of the work in our practice is making the mind fit to be able to truly study itself so they can truly see its own nature and begin to see impermanence. Now, the impermanence then quite naturally leads to everything else that was mentioned. Okay, now, I'm mentioning it so you have a context within which to, to, uh, to do this contemplation. Uh, the contemplation itself can be quite simple. Do you understand why if you have a pretty strong samadhi, you can just take 13, just drop everything else and just... It, what is suggested is the most thorough training is to go through the whole sutta. It's a kind of systematic training. But, for example, some people already have strong samadhi from years of practice, from different kinds of practices, vipassana or otherwise. And you can then just pick up on breathing in and breathing out, still using that, but now studying impermanence in whatever is there while breathing in and breathing out. And so it's a use of anapana, sati. Any questions about what's just been said? It's all about getting happy. That's what it's about, real happiness. 
Okay. So thus far in this sitting, you've been using the practice that best helps you to calm and concentrate the mind. For most of us, that means being with the breath at the nose tip or the upper lip, aiming our attention to the, to the breathing there, and gradually improving our ability to fix our attention and be with each in-breath and each out-breath, slipping off the breathing less and less. And the model to do the work of the 13th contemplation can very easily be this way. That is, whatever helps you get calm, whatever helps you stabilize the mind is good. The more calm, the more concentrated, of course, the more you'll be able to stay with the process of impermanence rather than continuing to be sucked into the content and as a result losing sight of the fact that it arises and passes away. What I'd like to suggest for next week, a way of working that is comparable for all of us so that we can discuss it next week, In at least one sitting a day, concentrate the mind as best you can, the first part of the sitting. And then to begin with, examine the breath itself and pick any of the following qualities, whichever one you're most attracted to. and and stay with it. It could be the length of the breath, which we've had some experience with. However you would like to do that. You can examine the length at the nose tip itself. You can examine the length by just being open and feeling whether the breath goes deeply or or not, or to what degree it goes deeply, or is shallow. So it could be length, and if so, after calming the mind, switch to length, still with the breath now, only now the breath is being used to develop vipassana, insight. And keep seeing the law of impermanence express itself through length, through long and short, or deep and shallow seeing how it keeps changing and becoming something else from moment to moment, from breath to breath. Or another quality that is very strongly related to length, it's often just another way of looking at it, is fineness or coarseness. Sometimes the breath becomes extremely fine 
and the general direction of the practice is as samadhi gets stronger, the breath becomes more fine. You can study that dimension and see how that changes, how the breath can be rather coarse and then become to varying degrees fine and become coarse again and so forth, seeing how that characteristic of breathing is subject to change. And so again, you're using the breath, but it's a study of this process of anicca. Or you could take the feeling of the breath itself. Sometimes the breath is very pleasant. Just the immediate reaction to the breathing is pleasant. Or sometimes it can be quite unpleasant, even painful. And very often it's neither, just neutral. You can use that dimension. Studying the breath to see how feeling keeps changing. How it becomes more or less pleasant or unpleasant. And deepening our appreciation of the law of impermanence that way. Let's do that for the remaining minutes of this sitting. If in attempting to see the way breath exhibits change, you find that you're straining, that's a good sign that more calm, more concentration is needed and that's valuable to learn. Because even if you can't do it right now, gradually as your samadhi develops, the day will come where this exercise, this contemplation, will be one that you find quite valuable. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.